good morning. Well, that's slightly better than the nine o'clock group, but we'll, we'll, we'll take it. Uh, my name is Todd Daly. I am professor of theology and ethics at Urbana Theological Seminary. I am filling in for Randy this week as we bring this series of being Christ to a conclusion. Before I start, uh, just a very brief commercial. There is a seminary in town. Most people aren't aware of that. We, we do actually offer classes and degrees. Um, this semester, we're offering classes in, in Old Testament, in interpretation. If you're really ambitious, classical Hebrew. I know, I know a lot of you are interested in that. Um, I teach theology and apologetics and ethics. We have courses in Christian counseling this semester spiritual formation, discipleship. If you have any questions, we have a booth set up in the, in the foyer or in the lobby and uh, a former student who'd be happy to an- answer any questions that you might have. If you want the real story, you can talk to Katie Pesson. She's one of our students or, or Dan Pack. Uh, there you are, Dan. Um, he'll, he'll tell you what really happens at Urbana Seminary. Um, hopefully it's positive, yeah. Um, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we thank you that you are the giver of great gifts, that you shape us, that you mold us, that you bring us back to your Father, that you have found us when we are lost, and that you don't desire to leave us alone but you shape us and mold us to matter for your kingdom. Will you come here this morning, Lord Jesus, through your Holy Spirit and speak to us, we pray. In your name, amen. Sit still. Concentrate. Pay attention. Focus. I'm not actually telling you that now um, as much as some pastors would like to tell their congregations that. Um, But these are words that we heard as children. These are words that I use as a parent. These words have been spoken for generations by parents. But most of us actually live in a culture where doing those kinds of things is becoming increasingly difficult. Most of us hit the ground running with that first awful sound of the alarm clock and don't manage to stop until late in the evening when the television has left us suspended in that semi-comatose-like state where we have just enough energy to keep surfing but not enough energy to get up and drag ourselves to bed. For many of us, that's about as close to doing nothing as we'll ever get. We don't know how to stop. We overwork, we overschedule, We overcommit, and we live in a culture that fosters this kind of frenetic pace of life where multitasking is our common mode of operation as we flitter from one thing to the next. But we are often unaware of the ways in which technology actually shapes us and forms us by cultivating habits, dispositions, and thoughts, and modes of thinking that run counter to who we are called to be as disciples of Jesus Christ. We are encouraged to run. We have phone companies called Sprint and banks called Chase. (laughs) Sprint is the now network. Not tomorrow, not in five minutes, 
Now, and Chase, uh, Chase has the credit card business going where they promise freedom as we chase what matters. The commercial shows someone using a credit card and um, money just comes out from somewhere. Isn't that great? The more you spend, the more you save. We immerse ourselves in the drama of reality TV to escape the drudgery of our own lives with tribal councils and the dreaded rose ceremony. (laughs) One study has actually found that Facebook makes us less happy by encouraging us to compare our Uh, rather bland lives to the staged hallmark moments of our friends' news feeds. (laughs) I mean, when you see your friends' ski trip holidays, uh, holiday photos in Vail, it makes it hard to post your photos from your weekend getaway in in Peoria. (laughs) We're encouraged to run. We are encouraged to use technology so that we can be free in 2006. The term crackberry was added to our urban dictionary, a term which attests to the addictive power of texting technology. In our hyperconnected world, we have created fragmented selves. We're always on, always plugged in. We push our kids on the swing in the park with one hand, with our Blackberry in the other. We neurotically check our smartphones on average 34 times a day looking for that little rush we get from the potential of getting something new. A couple months ago, one evening my wife and I were out on a date, and I observed at the next table there were four college students, all waiting for their food, all sitting together, all four of them sitting together, all using their smartphones. Together, alone. And with all of our devices to keep us connected to others, we seem to be more anxious and unhappy and isolated than ever. The social scientist and psychologist Sherry Turkle has recently written a book entitled Alone Together. It's on the screen behind me. Um, I I love the the subtitle. is Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. In this book, she says, we look to technology for ways to be in relationships and to protect ourselves from them at the same time. We'd rather text than talk. And in one recent lecture, she said, if we don't teach our children how to be alone, they will only know loneliness. Words of wisdom there. And I think the same applies to us. We don't know how to be alone anymore. We are encouraged to live the kind of life that mitigates against our very spiritual welfare. We run from responsibility. We run from marriage. We run from intimacy with each other, from life and from God. And with all of our consumption and technology and our neurotic kind of flitting about from one thing to the next, we have become, in the words of Pink Floyd, comfortably numb. Truth be told, we can get along just fine without Jesus, but we're utterly lost if we leave our iPhone on the kitchen counter. And I don't think that we do this consciously, but it's easy to see how our most important relationship, that with Jesus Christ, gets easily crowded out. Is it any wonder that many of us here this morning, and myself included, feel spiritually lethargic 
where prayer is non-existent or ineffective at best. We find ourselves maybe in some type of spiritual desert where we're dry, we're brittle, we're incapable of producing real fruit. And it becomes difficult to say in any real way what difference Jesus really makes. And if this describes any of you this morning, then Jesus has a word for us. And it is abide. Abide. And I've chosen this passage this morning, frankly, because I'm somewhat selfish and I needed this passage more than you. Also, since this series is about being Christ, I think we need to remember that we can't really expect to be Christ in our world unless we are connected to Christ in some kind of intimate way. We can't be Christ unless we're abiding with and in Christ. So here's where we're going this morning. Two, two big and fundamental questions. The, the why question and the how question. Uh, why? Why should we abide in Christ? And then secondly, what does that look like? What might that look like in my life? So first, the, the why question. Why, why bother? Why abide in Christ? Well, I think first it helps us avoid a wasted life. Jesus tells the disciples, I am the vine. And this is the final I am recorded in John. Jesus is preparing to go to the Father. He's preparing to leave his disciples behind and send the Holy Spirit. He's now giving them words of wisdom, words to live by. And so he says, I am the vine. My Father is the gardener, and you are the branches. He's drawing on the landscape of that time by appealing to a very common phenomenon. Uh, Grape growing is prevalent in Palestine. It's very common in this kind of agrarian culture. So in verse 4, Jesus commands his disciples, doesn't just suggest it, but commands his disciples, abide in me, remain in me. And this vine imagery suggests that Jesus is to be our very source of sustenance and life. He is stressing the need for a vital, organic union with him. Jesus is to be our source of life if we want to bear fruit or if we want to live any kind of life that is worth living. In fact, in verse 1, Jesus says that he is the true vine. The true vine. And scholars have suggested that Jesus is here distinguishing himself from other vines and primarily faithless Israel which was often likened to a vine in the Old Testament. In fact, every time that Israel is spoken of as a vine in the Old Testament, every single time the connotation is negative. It's a worthless vine, a fruitless vine, or it produces rotten fruit. So Jesus says that I am the true vine. It implies that there are other vines or sources of life that may actually sustain us. There may be other sources of life out there, but those may not produce any real growth. So here's a question worth pondering this morning. Who or what is your source of sustenance or life? What what kind of fuel are you running on? Because your fuel determines your fruit. Your fuel determines your fruit. Imagine, just for an instance, what it would be like to live for a week 
only on strawberry Twizzlers. It's, yes. Um, as always, a low-fat candy. Um, that delicious combination of corn syrup, partially hydrogenated soybean oil, and artificial flavors. Um, actually, uh, they get a rating of a D plus um, on some nutrition board. How you get a plus out of that is beyond me. Um, but there you have it. But there are other there are other sources of life uh, out there that perhaps are more tempting, are pervasive if we're over the age of five. Um, And some of us, quite frankly, run on the approval of others. But it tends to bear the fruit of an unstable or inadequate sense of self-worth. Some of us run on financial success or academic achievement, which can bear the fruit of arrogance or condescension if things are going well, or the fruit of anxious envy if things are not. Some of us run on anger and self-righteousness, which bears the fruit of isolation and judgment, the critical spirit. Some of us seek life through our kids, and we end up producing children with a sense of entitlement who will have difficulty coping with failure later on in life. We might call these kinds of lives fruitless or barren, and Jesus here gives us a very stark and sobering warning. If we fail to abide in Jesus, we become as fruitless as a branch that is disconnected from the vine. In verses four and five, he just comes out and says, you're powerless. If we fail to remain in Christ, Jesus tells us, frankly, you're unable to do anything. In the Greek, it reads, you have no power to do nothing. Without Jesus, we are as likely to bear fruit as a branch severed from the vine is likely to bear grapes. And more ominously, the Father cuts us off or takes away those branches that do not bear fruit. In verse two. These kinds of branches are thrown out. They wither, they're thrown into a pile, and they're burned. Now, I I hasten to say this passage is not talking about eternal security. We need to be careful about imposing doctrines on texts instead of working the other way around. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul reminds us that we are in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. So this reference to burning the dead branches speaks rather of a judgment. It fits the metaphor. As one commentator puts it, uselessness invites disaster. what, What an awful thing to get to the end of your life only to have the Father say that we failed to abide with Jesus and we lived for the wrong things and that our life was of little or no account in his kingdom. That we lived a wasted life. We need not associate a wasted life with someone who never lived up to his or her potential or someone who perhaps wasted her life away with drug and alcohol abuse only to die somewhere in a back alley. Because honestly, wasted life can look pretty attractive. Like a retired couple enjoying fine cuisine in a hotel restaurant 
in Rio de Janeiro overlooking the Copacabana Beach as the sun sets. Sounds good to me. And we'll, we'll come back to that shortly. But if we're not bearing fruit, the Father will bring judgment. However, the alternative is hardly appealing. For Jesus also says that abiding in Christ will, be, will shape you for significance. Remaining in Christ means that the Father prunes or cuts away things in our life or character so that we become more fruitful. You want to grow, you must be pruned. Any vineyard knows, any vineyard owner knows that pruning the vine is essential for a maximum yield and growth. For not all branches will have the potential to support large clusters of grapes. And left to its own devices, a vine will produce a good deal of unproductive growth in several different directions. So the gardener has to do some pruning. And the word prune here actually comes uh, from, from another word that's used for cleansing. In fact, in, in the Greek, there's a play on words going on here between take away and prune in the NIV. Take away is array and prune is kathare. We get the word catharsis or cathartic from this Greek word here translated as prune. That pruning is likened to cleansing is made clear actually in verse 3 where much to the disciples' relief, Jesus says, you're already clean. You can almost feel them collectively exhale. You've been pruned by my words, by my teaching. Nevertheless, we're faced with a choice. Be trimmed or be cut off. I mean, is, isn't there a third option somewhere in there? And the criterion is how much fruit we're producing. If we're abiding in Jesus, we can expect to be pruned. And if you feel dry and withered or spiritually lethargic, if you feel stuck, if your prayers are ineffective and your heart is grown cold, if God feels far away, if you're not accustomed to uh, being consumed with the things that consume the heart of God, then it probably has to do with our failure to abide with Jesus Christ. And we're not alone because spiritual valleys are a part of being a Christian. It could be that we've reduced Christianity to just holding a set of particular beliefs. Being a Christian is believing the right things. Well, that's certainly part of it. Or it could be that we've equated Christian life with just a couple of practices. Or what we don't do. Like going, you know, like going to church. We should go to church. I go to church. I'm a Christian. I listen to WBGL. But being a Christian is better understood in terms of discipleship, which means being a follower of Jesus. It's a term that Jesus himself uses in verse 8. We prove that we're his disciples by bearing fruit, but to bear fruit we must be pruned. And pruning is painful. Pruning stinks. Pruning threatens our comfort. It's good to be reminded that we serve the God of all comfort, but God's goal is not to make us comfortable. Sometimes I think we need to be reminded of that. Abiding in Christ means that we will be pruned. Just as the surgeon skillfully cuts away a cancerous growth that threatens our flourishing, our existence, our Father skillfully prunes away those things that would keep us from becoming more fruitful. But we have to be willing to go under the knife. 
Retired Professor Walter Wink has recently reflected on the pain that he endured in going under the father's knife during a period that he described as an intense time of growth, and he used that term euphemistically. He told his spiritual mentor at one point that he simply couldn't stand it anymore. He was stuck, and it was too intense. So his spiritual mentor said, she said this, good, you're just where God wants you, and then walked away. This, this really irritated uh, Walter, and so he chased her down to remind her that her response was not very pastoral. And she replied over her shoulder, well then write a, lot, write a dialogue with God about it. Go, go, go take it to God. Uh, and in his anger, he did. And he says, I continued to cook. And in retrospect, I can see how essential it was that the fires of purgatory smelted me in this way. No one would voluntarily enter these fires. God had, as it were, ambushed me, and I simply had to ride out the storm. I realized later that I was free to abort this process at any point in time, but something in me stayed with the process simply because God was in it. This, too, was a way to abide. And then he reflects on those words of Jesus. Abide in me and I in you. Even when it feels as if you are being consumed. Abide in me for there are branches that, when pruned, can be used to build the inferno in which you can be cooked and cleansed and slowly shaped into a human being. Power, success, envy, lust, bitterness... They're all dead branches. And God's pruning brings forth fruit. What kind of fruit exactly, we're not really told. But it's probably the most miraculous kind of fruit of all, and that is the fruit of a transformed person. The fruit of a transformed human being. The fruit of the Spirit. We become more loving, more joyful, more peaceful. Imagine what it would be like to be more patient, to be more kind, to be more faithful, to be more gentle, to have more self-control. Pruning makes those descriptors more and more accurate of our character. And there's one more. The text actually helps us here in verses 7 and 8 where Jesus says that the evidence of abiding is the fruit of answered prayer, which brings glory to his Father. Abiding in Christ gets prayers answered. Gets prayers answered. Of course, this is no name it and claim it type of teaching. And while God does indeed act based on our prayers, reminding us in James that we don't have because we don't ask, our answered prayers here are always according to God's will. So I think what's being suggested here is a harmony or a unity of wills where we're so used to abiding in and with Christ that our desires begin to reflect his. One way to practice this, and I I encourage you to try this, is to start praying those prayers that always get answered. Prayers like, use me, 
Shape me, mold me, give me a role in your kingdom. Help me to be Jesus to someone today. (laughs) These, of course, are dangerous and risky kinds of prayers. But abiding in Jesus makes these kinds of prayers just a natural thought flow of our lives. Which brings us back to the retired couple overlooking um, Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro. As seated at the next table was a 19-year-old kid by the name of Bill Hybels. Expecting one day to take over the family business, his somewhat eccentric dad called him into his office, handed him a stack of airline tickets and hotel reservations, and told him that he needed to go see South America, good and bad, to see what the rest of the world was like. On this particular evening, uh, this is a good day. He was at a nice hotel in Rio de Janeiro, a few floors down from the restaurant. And so he decided to go up and get something to eat, and he sat next to this retired couple. And he, I remember when he, he preached on this and um, shared about this whole experience, when he overheard this conversation between the husband and the wife. And at one moment of uh, this supreme self-satisfaction kind of welling up within this man, he said, honey, being here tonight at this hotel on this beach makes all of life's efforts worth it. I mean, look at this. Copacabana Beach. The long hours of work, the overtime, the business travel, it was all worth it to be right here, right now. And as a 19-year-old kid, Heibel said those words hit him like a sledgehammer because he thought, I'm already here. (laughs) (laughs) If, If this is the payoff for long hours of work and hard decades of striving, there has got to be something more. And he was so shaken up by this that he left his dinner uneaten, went back down to his hotel room, sat on his bed with palms open and prayed to God. He said, God, guide my life toward a purpose that will really count. I am wide open to how you would choose to lead my life. Heibel said that he never heard God respond that night, didn't get any clear sense of direction, but he did recall, in his words, a strange feeling of adrenaline mixed with terror sweep over him. And a few months later, Bill left his dad's produce business and all the perks that would have gone with it and started a youth group in the suburb of Chicago that would one day become what is now Willow Creek Community Church. One prayer in one hotel room. God shaped Hybels for significance and brought him face to face with a picture of a life wasted. He answered a simple yet dangerous prayer. However, while Heibel's prayer has been answered in a big way, he would be the first to say that there's been a whole lot of pruning along the way, even up to this day, because he's cultivated the discipline of learning to go to God and live life life with Christ along the way. With all of uh, his wisdom and insight and experience, he still says, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is go to my knees at my bedside and pray. That's not a bad idea. 
Because in our striving for success, Christ wants to shape us instead for significance. Abiding in Christ helps us avoid a wasted life, shapes us for something more, and gets our prayers answered to the glory of God the Father. Okay, great. What does, what does abiding look like? What, what does abiding look like? And here, I, I want to break from the norm as a professor and try to actually say something practical. Um, um, as I mentioned at, at the beginning of this sermon, we, you know, we live in a culture that mitigates us against slowing down and stopping and even understanding what it means to abide, what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And Jesus himself in this passage doesn't give us a whole lot of help. I mean, he does say that when we abide in Christ, we obey his commands, the first of which is to love each other. That's a start, that's great. And at the very least, that command should remind us that abiding in Christ is not a purely vertical relationship between us and Jesus. It's horizontal as well. All of the yous in this passage are plural. But there are at least two basic lines of thought that we can pursue very briefly here before, uh, before we go. And the first is simply this learning to do everyday tasks differently. We don't need to go to a mountaintop, although that would be really cool, and it's a great way to abide. Um, we have to live life in the meantime. Philip Comfort, Wendell Hawley say that our abiding in Christ is absorbing Christ, dwelling in his words, recognizing that he is with us, and enjoying the pleasure of his company. I don't think it could be said much better than that. <laughs> However, in order to do that kind of thing, we need to learn to slow down to cultivate the practice of beginning each simple and menial task with a prayer of confession and thanksgiving and a prayer for help. This may involve shutting off the TV or the radio or our iPods or turning our phone off for a little bit so that we can actually foster a sense of communion with Christ who is in the everyday. Uh, Kathleen Norris has recently written about her own struggle to commune with God as she took care of her dying husband. She found herself unable to pray for months at a time, but she continued to perform the menial tasks like scrubbing his urinals and toilets as a conscious expression of gratitude to God and thanksgiving, being aware consciously of God's presence. For her, she says, these tasks themselves became the prayer of the commode. The prayer of the commode. Do you ever think about praying to Jesus while you're cleaning your toilet? She says this, uh, faith and love, uh, that faith and love operate best through the humble means of boring everyday occupations as a thoroughly biblical perspective. For its stories repeatedly remind us that God's attention is fixed on what we regard as unimportant and unworthy. We are asked to remember that we are refreshed each day like dew-laden grass that is renewed in the morning. Or in more personal and theological terms, our inner nature is being renewed every day. In this light, the apparently ludicrous attention to detail in Leviticus, where God is involved in the minutia of daily life, right down to the cooking and cleaning, might be seen instead as the love of a God who desires to be present to us in everything we do. 
And for those of us afflicted with a sense of spiritual apathy or a sense of disconnectedness from God, she reminds us that simple activities like going for a walk with no iPod and no iPhone or any other device, uh, memorizing scripture, singing the Psalms, worship, seeking community, dusting a bookshelf, washing dishes, baking bread are all common practices where Christ can be found and engaged. Secondly, engaging in particular disciplines that train us to abide with Christ, I'm only going to mention two, fasting and meditative prayer. Uh, in, in fasting, we can fast from food. Uh, this is especially powerful to rekindle a dry and tired or cold spirit. It's often uh, helpful if we're going to fast, say, for a half a day or a day to, to meditate a little bit on John 6, where Jesus tells us that he is the bread of life. Maybe you turn that phrase over and over in your head and dwell on it a little bit as your body reminds you of its own demands for food. You could pray something like this, uh, Lord Jesus, let me crave your presence as much as my body craves food. Let me feast on you. Or create in me, O Lord, a hunger for your presence. Technology fasts work well too. I know several people now who completely disconnect for one day a week. They take a technology Sabbath. Secondly, meditative prayer. This, this kind of method of prayer has been largely forgotten or abandoned by us contemporary uh, modern evangelicals, I think much to our demise. It's been spoken of uh, in several books on, on discipline and, and learning to be like Christ. It stems from Ignatius of Loyola who, who sought to use the Bible and prayer together to help us pray. His method was basically insert yourself in a New Testament story, particularly a gospel story that talks about Jesus and, and think about the five senses and try to imagine what that would be like as you and Jesus sit together. For example, you might find yourself uh, in the story of the feeding of the multitudes on the hillside by the Sea of Galilee in John 6. And he says, imagine yourself as the child who has just given up his lunch to Jesus or maybe the child's parents. And so, now instead of explaining this or talking about it, I, I want us actually to do this and then, and then we'll close in prayer. So this is always a risky thing in a sermon to ask people to close their eyes and maybe bow their heads for two to three minutes. But we're gonna do that um, and we'll see how it goes. If you find it's getting too intense for you, you know, feel free to check your email or something. Um, and th- then I'll close us in, in, in prayer and, and the worship team will, will, will come up and uh, have something more for us. So uh, imagine yourself, if you will, sitting at the uh, Sea of Galilee up on a hillside. You look over and you see uh, kind of a misty, hazy blue. You may maybe see a few white caps on the sea but the breeze is, is refreshing. You envision yourself as the disciples are gathering around Jesus and as he prays for the food and it begins to multiply. You, you picture the joy of the faces, the joy on faces as the bread and the fish are distributed. You hear the sea in the background and the distant clamor 
and discussion going on around you that gradually diminishes as people begin to eat and cook. You hear the voices of children playing. You take in the smell of fresh roasted fish over open coals. Maybe the breeze catches your nose again and you you can smell a distant olive grove. You tear off a piece of bread that is perfect in texture and flavor. You enjoy some fish and you feel the grass under under your feet and in between your toes as you sit and enjoy this miraculous meal. And then finally, you try to imagine your emotions as you bring your lunch to Jesus' disciples and your initial hesitation or maybe being nervous. And finally, joy at what Jesus has done with your gift. And after a while, the crowds begin to slowly dissipate and Jesus leads them up and over a hillside until you are alone, sitting on a rock, overlooking the water, experiencing the events of this day. You become quiet. And after a little while, Jesus returns and sits on a rock nearby. You're both together now, and for a time you are both silent, taking in the scenery together and just enjoying one another's presence. But after a few more moments, the Lord turns to you and asks, what may I do for you? And then you tell him what is in your heart, your needs, your fears, your hopes. Sometimes there may not even be words or just tears. And that's okay. Because you're enjoying his presence. When you have finished, you become quiet again for a little while. And then you turn to the Lord and ask him, what may I do for you? And then you listen with your heart quietly and prayerfully. You may not get any clear instruction, but that's okay. Because again, you are just happy to be in his presence. A few moments later, he smiles and looks at you and says, thank you. I love you. I'm proud of you. Let's do this again. Lord Jesus, would you teach us what it means to abide in you? We admit that we are utterly powerless to do anything that matters apart from your help. Grant us the grace and the strength and the wisdom and the vision to seek you out with the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us and that you are already in us. In your name we pray, amen.